Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. I cover all things food, from cooking to gardening to fabulous ingredients to junk food, health, sustainability, even policy. You might say I'm obsessed with everything about food. Food is the one substance that connects everything to everything else, and it connects us all. Not only can we not live without it, not only does it determine much of what goes on in the world, but we love it. Greetings, friends, and welcome to Food with Mark Pittman. We're going to talk in this episode with Carla Hall, about whom you probably know, and our most recent book, Carla Hall's Soul Food, and about African-American food in general. Carla is effervescent, brilliant, and fun, and it's a great conversation. I'll also share a couple of her recipes. We'll take some of your questions. If you want to get into that, call 833-FOOD-POD. And more, all coming up on Food. Carla and I chose a few recipes from Carla Hall's Soul Food to share with you, and I'm just going to talk through them quickly, and we will also reproduce them on the website so you'll have full details. My favorite of these is the first, and it's smashed carrots with curry oil. So you preheat an oven to 375 and line a baking sheet with parchment paper. Mix a couple of tablespoons of vegetable oil with a half teaspoon of good quality curry powder or garam masala. You just let that sit for a little bit. You rub another tablespoon of oil over about a pound of carrots that have been scrubbed or peeled. Good carrots, of course. 
Sprinkle that with salt and bake on that parchment paper for about 45 minutes. When the carrots are tender, you sprinkle lemon juice all over all of them, put them back in the oven, and bake for about 15 minutes longer until they're really soft. At that point, put the carrots on a serving plate and gently press them down with a wooden spoon or a large spatula until they've flattened a bit. Drizzle the curry oil all over that and serve it hot or warm or at room temperature. Really great. The next Carla recipe I'm going to share with you sounds ordinary. It's pickled cucumber salad, but it has a couple twists and it's really good. I like it a lot. Take a couple of large cucumbers. If the peels are thick, peel them, but if not, let them be. Same with the seeds. If there aren't too many, let them be, but otherwise scoop them out. Slice those cucumbers, two big ones, you know, about a pound. Um, arrange them on a platter and sprinkle well with salt and pepper. Cover with some plastic wrap. Put that in the fridge for an hour. Then go do something else. When you come back, whisk together a couple of tablespoons of apple cider vinegar, a pinch of sugar, maybe a quarter teaspoon, equal amount of chili flakes or to taste. Start with a big pinch. Whisk that together in a big bowl. Now your hour is up, right? So you, you discard any of the accumulated juices on the platter of cucumber, put the cucumbers in with the vinegar mixture, and toss that well. Then return that all to the platter, again in a single layer, cover it again with plastic wrap, and refrigerate for a few hours, three or four hours. When you're ready, transfer that to a serving plate, garnish it with dill, and serve. Carla Hall has done it all. Model, chef, she was a top chef competitor and winner, host of The Chew, restaurateur. She's even a certified public accountant. So she's not only multi-talented, she's become one of the country's most recognizable and adored people working in food. One of the reasons for this is that her enthusiasm is infectious. I talked with Carla a while back about her book, Carla Hall's Soul Food, and although the book has now been on the shelves for a while, its focus is more relevant than ever. And Carla, no surprise, is a joyful spokesperson for the food that she loves best. So I, you know, I want to hear about your, your soul food tour, your southern tour, which you're from the south originally. I'm from Nashville, Tennessee. And it's so funny because take, taking this tour got me closer to my roots as a Southerner than not taking it. Because I, I spent so many years taking it for granted and not really coming back and seeing it that I really needed this tour to do this book. Had you been, like when you were young, did you travel? Younger, excuse me. When you no, were younger, no, young. did, <laughs> <laughs> did you travel proud. in the South? Or was this sort of a new... Because you went a lot of places on this I trip. went a lot of places. Yeah, right. So I went, we started, we did Savannah. We went to Charleston, Savannah. We came through Alabama. We did Birmingham, Selma, went up to Jackson, Mississippi, and then finished in Nashville. So, um, and that's that region. I mean, we couldn't go everywhere. We had about 10 days, and that's the region that I think, um, based on the food, our foods are quite similar, especially Alabama, Mississippi, well, I mean, Alabama, Mississippi, and Tennessee, I think, are very similar. Um, but when I was younger, or young, I would go to Atlanta a lot. And interestingly enough, I don't know what 
food is in Atlanta. Right. It's too big now. Yes. You know, versus Savannah having a definite definite perspective. You felt like food was different, say, in Memphis, Nashville, Savannah, Charleston? Yes. I Definitely Memphis is very different. Nash, I mean, Tennessee is such a long state, and it touches seven other states. So East Tennessee is very different from Middle Tennessee, which is different from West Tennessee. Even the accents are somewhat different because you have the influence of the other states around them. Um. But when I went on this tour and talking to farmers and talking to people about dishes that they grew up, I, I was really interested in talking to older people about the dishes that they grew up having before things had changed. Right. Uh, so what did they remember back in the day? And and one of the the dishes that I really, and the stories that I heard, was about shrimp and grits. When I say to you shrimp and grits, what do you think of? Well, I... Yeah, I certainly didn't grow up eating shrimp and grits, so right. I sort of thought it was a tw- late 20th century thing. Or I think mm-hmm. of Charleston, I guess. Right, but you probably, when you have shrimp and grits, it's some gravy on the shrimp and maybe tasso or some kind of ham. And then you have these very rich, buttered, maybe mm-hmm. sometimes cheesy, which I don't know why that is, cheesy grits. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's just, it's rich. But I was talking to B.J. Dennis's mom, and they're from the coast of South Carolina. And she said, really, for them, it was just simple grits, maybe a bay leaf made with water, mm. and beautiful shrimp that were fresh, that they that were caught that day, so they were so sweet. And then you throw in some other vegetables, maybe the Holy Trinity or something. And it was showing off the shrimp. But today, the shrimp gets lost in all of that fat. And as an African-American and being lactose intolerant, we have all the, you know, we wouldn't have put right. cream and all that butter and everything in the grits. Well, yeah, I'm assuming that where there were shrimp, there was not dairy to begin with. So right. butter was probably expensive and cream was probably not that available. Right. So, yeah, what you're saying makes perfect sense. I mean, it makes sense as a tradition. So that's why I, I tried in this book to go back to go backwards to see what those dishes were, you know, and to bring that food forward because that was the sole food that I think is sustainable and maybe maybe the everyday foods, the everyday dishes that people were eating, not the very narrow view of what soul food is. Right. Let me ask you about that because you know I was reading this piece about music, because um, I do, and it was about how you know. Um, Rhythm and blues used to be called race music, Mm. and country music used to be called hillbilly music. Mm -hmm. Um, And those distinctions were made because the record companies were racist, basically, and assumed that their audiences were discreet and also racist, or at least the white half of their audience was. Um, So the thing is that the roots of hillbilly music and race music, the roots are both blues. Everything comes from blues, and blues, as we know, is mostly as African roots. So it's like this whole genre of music. And if you listen to so-called country, you can, you can hear the blues in it. Mm-hmm. And obviously in R&B, it's even easier. But all of this stuff comes from sort of the same roots. And, you know, I'm wondering if you see a kind of similar division between so-called Southern food and soul food. Because, you know, is and 
you know, I don't want to make too much of it, but, you know, is Southern food white and soul food black or yep. are they the same? <laughs> are they the same things only called by a different name or what? I think the easiest way I, in a word, yes. And it, I think people try to have this intellectual discussion about the difference between soul food and Southern food. And simply put, soul food is the food of black people. Southern food is a derivative of the food of black people. Right. Soul food. Okay. So because who was cooking, right? I mean, even though black people were doing other things. But I also like to share the example of like a hymn and a Negro spiritual, you know? Um, You can take that same song, same notes and everything, but there is a riffing that happens when it becomes a Negro spiritual so that it is coming from your belly into your soul and out to, to share a passion or a story that you can't really say in words that you are doing in notes. I mean, not to be trite, but it's like it has soul. It has soul. <laughs> it has soul. And so when I say to somebody, okay, let's make collard greens, and somebody goes, oh, yeah, I have collard greens, and you go, who is making them in the southern tradition versus the soul food tradition? And when I try to put in the book about cooking them to they to that those flavors meld – and intuitively I know what I'm looking for that sometimes it's hard to write in a recipe mm-hmm. um, whereas I think sometimes in the southern tradition it becomes more of an intellectual thing versus a, a hard thing does that make sense it does but I you know I've met good white cooks in the right. south and they know what the food ought to taste like mm-hmm. and I'm like yeah well this is actually black people's food and they you know they're like yeah yeah, and they will acknowledge it. I just met a guy recently. His name is Nick, and he lives. Uh, he's from, he's from um, Memphis, and he has this beautiful accent that sounds like he's from Mississippi. But Memphis is right there near Mississippi, and he loves this food. He grew up on this food, and 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 soul food, and some of the the musicians that came out of Memphis that were that were known all over the country, he thought it was just a local thing because that's what he grew up having right. in Memphis. Right. And so the thing is, when you, if you are Italian, you don't make distinctions about your food because that's what you know. That's what it is. You don't say, oh, this is Italian food. So I think that what I'm hoping to do with this book is to say that soul food has a place just like Italian food or French food or, you know, any other cuisine, and that it definitely influenced American cuisine. You have a bunch of chicken recipes, which also makes sense, because I just learned slaves were not allowed to own livestock. They were not allowed to own pigs or cattle or sheep or goats, but they were allowed to own chickens. Mm -hmm. So there was a time in this country when really the only people cooking chickens were slaves. Right. And then after that, the only people cooking chickens were slaves' descendants. Um, and then in the 20s or 30s, it was like white people discovered how to make money raising chickens, so then everybody started eating chickens. But maybe it explains sort of why the most beloved chicken recipes in the United States, you know, starting with fried chicken, 
date back to the time of slavery. Right. I, I think, and those are the, finding out those stories and working with the culinary historian Tanya Hopkins was what was so compelling and interesting to me because I, I was learning it at the same time. And the more that I learned, the more that I wanted to dig in and, and learn even more. And I'm just focused on the Southeast. Right. You know, when this food goes out west, it changes. Or when it when it was going north with the Great Migration, it changes again. And so these stories, but even sometimes we talk about fried chicken, but you needed your chickens also for eggs. So you weren't going to have chicken all the time. Right. You know, you needed you you needed another protein, so it wasn't sustainable to kill your chicken. You want to say something about okra? You know, it's you so know, funny. You have like half a dozen recipes for okra. In Isn't here. it funny? So many people like are, don't give me any okra. You know, and they hate okra. I think okra is misunderstood, and I can say that because I misunderstood it. <laughs> <laughs> I. I was not always a lover of okra, and whenever I have to cook something that I don't like, it forces me to find a version of it so that I can, you know, eat it and, and make it palatable for my, for my taste. So I roast it a lot. I grill it. Um, I don't like it because it's slimy. And one of the turning points of the book was making the, the chunky tomato soup with the roasted okra. And I took the same ingredients that I would use for the stewed tomato and okra, which is a staple on a lot of um, um, soul food tables. And it cooks very slowly, and, it, and it's thick, and it is a little gelatinous, very flavorful. But I said, I really want that, but I don't want that consistency. Right. So I made this really brothy soup, <clears throat> and I roasted the okra rounds until they were charred. And then as soon as you take those charred okra rounds right before you're going to eat the soup and you put them in the soup, it permeates the broth. And so you don't get the sliminess right. and you get that nice texture from the okra. I think the first time I had okra, it wasn't that it wasn't slimy. It was chopped up and sort of fried to death. Mm-hmm. And that, that'll kill the sliminess. That'll kill, that'll <laughs> I kill like the sliminess, but I, yeah, I sort of get it. Yeah, in the book, you interview a bunch of people, which is really fun. And mm-hmm. obviously people you account, encountered either intentionally or randomly. A little bit of both. Right. Seems like both. Did you visit with farmers? Can you talk a little about um, African-American farming in the South? Yes. Matthew Rayford. Um, uh, I know that guy. He is incredible. Beautiful gentleman. And um, again, left home, did not want to have anything to do with his farm. Ended up coming back to his family farm that they had had since the you know mid 1800s, and starting it up again. But he and his sister were just listening to these stories that their grandmother told, even about bear, uh, getting the berries and laying this white sheet down and shaking the limbs of these berries, and that had to be a clean sheet so they could see how ripe the berries were when they fell Uh and making, you know, stains and stuff and all of these things. And then he talked about chasing away the mosquito truck because they didn't want people to spray their land. And we complain about mosquitoes, but if there are no mosquitoes, there aren't a lot of other things as well. So when they stopped the mosquito truck, all of these vegetables that were on their land started coming back. Mm. So Matthew's restaurant, The Farmer and the Larder, which is in Brunswick, Georgia, 
is the recipient of all of these beautiful things that he's growing at his farm, and um, he's an incredible character. Um, the South obviously has a way longer growing season than we do, and you know we used to and still do get a lot of vegetables from the Mid-South, especially the Carolinas and stuff, that area. But um, that you know, seasonality should change the way that people cook, but a lot of times it doesn't. It should, and I think that from the mere fact of if you had a farm and you're going out to harvest your vegetables because that is what is available because you're not going to the store, you have no choice. Now we have the luxury of going to the store where things are shipped in, and so we don't know what the seasons are. And I was making shrimp and grits a couple days ago, and in the recipe, in this book, it's just peppers and tomatoes and some scallions and garlic. But at the farmer's market, I saw corn and these beautiful tomatoes. So why wouldn't I add corn to that? You know, and if I had okra, I could add okra to that. It, it is just a sauce, which I'm making with tomatoes, or you know, and then shrimp and then the grits. And so whatever that sauce is, is whatever is available. And I think that we get caught up in what the authentic thing is, but what is authentic is what was available. Someone said to me the other day, I know that I should be looking at recipes first and going out and buying the right ingredients. And I was like, no, no, that's the wrong way. (laughs) The right way to do it is to go and see what looks good and buy that. Yes. um, And then figure out what you're going to cook. So um, it is also a way to keep, if you're a professional cook, it's a way to keep things fresh because you're keeping yourself guessing. We're going to take a quick break now and we'll be back with more of Carla Hall in just a minute. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. 
Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Did you have a sense? What did you feel about the way people were eating? How do you think people are eating these days in general? I think that we have a very different lifestyle. We're more sedentary now. We're, you know, we have jobs where we're sitting at a desk. And so our, we, we're eating much lighter now. Or we should be. Well, we should be. And I, I think that when we do the celebration meals, it's usually at restaurants. And, um, but the thing is, we eat out a lot. So we're actually probably having celebration foods a lot more than we need to. I mean, the first thing that people say to me when I go to a town, oh, you have to go to this restaurant or that restaurant, and you have to get the foie gras this and the fried that, and the, you know, it's always some rich foods that they're not going to make at home that they're suggesting that you go out and have. Because I travel a lot, and because I do eat out a lot, I can't, I can't go and eat the the food. I'm, I'm like, where is there a salad? Where is there something fresh, something raw, something that is lighter? So I'm always looking for those dishes. But I, I think that we want a balance. At least we want to tell ourselves that we want a balance. And the things that we're making at home are those everyday dishes. I think the things that we feel more most comfortable making are the quick meals, the things that um, we can just do a one-pot wonder. Um, and maybe once a week, <clears throat> maybe once a week we may, or once a month, we're making these dishes that take more time. But what I find very interesting is that a lot of the healthy dishes that come out of this food or West Africa or like the watermelon water, coconut water, nuts, grains, they aren't seen as healthy when we think about soul food. But when we think about doing healthier dishes, we... We don't mention or come back to where these dishes or where these foods came from. 
Now, all of a sudden, they're on the other side of the tracks. It's like, oh, let's have a kale salad. Oh, let's have watermelon juice or coconut water. And it's like, Carla, have you ever had kale before? You know, I insert eye roll. Right. Of course I've had kale. I grew up with it, and it's not new. Right. And I just wish that when you are bringing these things out of the culture, that the culture remains intact. I mean, it's, Right. The culture is acknowledged. Really. Acknowledged. Yeah. I mean, kimchi, because, you know, of course it's going to be acknowledged as Korean. Um, but then it's everywhere. Now, Now, I mean, people say, oh, Korean food's having a moment. But do the Koreans feel that way? They're like, I've been eating this food all my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing about the moment is very telling because it's like things get kind of processed in this way that then they're over. Right. Which is let's say, taming things, yes. you know, making them more ordinary, or well, maybe ordinary is not, but but finding the, but the mass appeal them. of something, mm-hmm. yeah, and and then losing its, you know, for want of a better word, soul. Right, um, right. I mean, I even went through that when I was making the hot water cornbread. And for the, when I was doing one of these little competitions, these friendly competitions that we would do on the chew, and I was cooking against um, Clinton Kelly. And Clinton was like, late that day before, he's like, oh, I'm going to do this um, gratin or like this casserole with broccoli and cauliflower and cheese, you know, no connection to it. And I said, oh, I know what I'm going to do. My grandmother's greens with pot liquor and hot water cornbread. I right. thought, ah, oh, that would be delicious. And I get to share a little something about myself. And so I put this dish in front of probably Italians from New Jersey because that's who was at the, you know, that's who's coming and who is in this area. And of course, maybe two people loved my dish and the other eight loved Clinton's dish and I was hurt. Yeah. Right. Um, So when I got ready to do hot water cornbread for this cookbook and we were even shooting it and I'm making it and I, and I try to incorporate, um, had a shoe with my hot water cornbread to make it palatable for someone outside of my culture. And I had a moment, and it's probably my grandmother's spirit. <laughs> it's like, what am I doing? Why am I doing that? Why can, am I not sharing this dish the way that it actually is? It's simply boiled water, white cornmeal, salt, fat, you know, put together into um, a patty and then fried. That's what it is. Right. And and why did I feel the need to change it? And I did have a come to Jesus moment about this it, who I am and what I'm doing and what our food is is good enough. And certainly authentic. Right. I thought we might talk about diabetes a little bit because okay. it's a cause you're active in. It ties into talking about seasonality and yes. healthier food. I mean, there's a lot of hypertension, diabetes, um, and a lot of diseases. Um especially in the African-American community because of our food and the way that we eat. And um, the more affluent that we became in, and, and the more migrant that we became, we, we were frying a lot of things. And people just never changed the way that they ate. And one thing that I want to do with this book is to show people that if we get back to our true roots, you really can heal yourself with food. Food is either going to be poison or it's going to be medicine. And if you eat fresh, seasonally, making your own food, very simple applications of whatever you're cooking and sautéing, then um, we wouldn't have such a problem 
you're saying that as people became more distanced from the land and more urban and shopped more than they farmed, Correct. or they became what they said. I think they started frying more foods. I think um, when they when you don't have a garden, you are even with the Great Migration when people were leaving and after slavery. And as horrible as it was, but if you were in one place and you had a plot of land and you were growing food, you were eating that food. As you became more migrant, and let's say going in the Great Migration going north toward you know, Chicago and all these other cities, St. Louis, you were then transient and frying things. And you know, um, the food wasn't as fresh and it wasn't the same. And you didn't have a garden. Can we talk a little about one barrier you've had to overcome is not only race, but gender. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about women in the food world a little bit and how you see that changing? If it's changed, what's happening now? Yeah, there there are not a lot of women. But interestingly enough, I feel that when a thing becomes a profession that women did all the time, all of a sudden they're not a part of it. Mm. And I feel like women have to take back the kitchen. We've been there. And you you talk to a lot of male chefs, and they always say how they're inspired by their mothers and their grandmothers. But when it becomes a profession, they aren't there. And so I think in that, taking back the kitchen, like what the kitchen feels like, more nurturing versus being like a rock star and more about um, – and, I, and, I, and I'm saying that – meaning that there is male energy and there's female energy. And so there are men who have female energy. And so when you eat their food, you feel it's very nurturing. And then there are women who have male energy, and you eat their food, and you're like, this is egoic, and I don't know what I ate after, which is beautiful, but uh, what did I eat? Yeah, something that was put on the plate with tweezers. Right, and no connection to the heart. You know, but when you go and you have a simple meal and and – you go to some small restaurant, one person in the kitchen, one person out serving, and they bring you some simple pasta dish or whatever it is, and it's so simple, but you remember everything about it because the intention behind that dish was to please you, to hug you, to nurture you. And and that is as big of an ingredient, and I talk about cooking with love, as anything else, you know, all those flowers. Oh, my God, I had a flower stuck in my throat the other day. It didn't even need to be on the dish. I, it was stuck in my throat, and I was coughing. I got home, and sorry, this is probably not good radio talk. <laughs> Did you throw up? <laughs> no, I, I was just like coughing. <clears throat> and then finally is that pedal. And I said, when I saw the dish, I'm like, this doesn't belong here. Right. Why is this here? Why is this here? Was this put there with the tweezers? I guarantee you. Yes. When I, I recently judged the hamburger hot, which was so great, in Chicago at the um, Chicago Gourmet, and there are, th- there are four categories, one of which is creativity. So it's a quarter of your points. But everybody focuses on that. that. I'm like, did you season the burger? <laughs> did you toast the bun? Did you do all the other things that actually will make this burger really great that's 15 points? If you focused on the 15 points, like overall taste, creativity, you know, for, with for taking creativity out, you're more than likely to get 15 points versus focusing on creativity and getting like four. Right. What's the, now I'm curious, what was the most ridiculous burger? There was something deconstructed, no doubt. Yeah, it, it was, it had kimchi and some other kind of other thing. And it just had too many notes. 
It's, it's just too many notes. And then there was one with a, a rib. It would have been great if you take the, took the rib off, but I had to judge it because it had the rib on it, uh, with pickles. It was a rib, barbecue sauce, burger, cornmeal bun. Um, but it was delicious, but I needed to take the rib off because it was too rich. But it was a delicious burger. I'm surprised it wasn't like little tiny bits of ground beef with really deconstructed chopped tomatoes a pile of cinnamon oh god <laughs> yeah know. no that was a, it, no it had to be on the bun uh, yes no <laughs> yeah it is fun to end on um last question how do you try to eat when you're traveling oh um salads i really do i i do a lot of soups and a lot of salads like in chicago i go to the dearborn and they have this <laughs> this amazing salad um because I need to keep it moving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. This is a recipe that Carla and I and many other people have shared in recent years, but it's such a perfect summer recipe and so easy that I'm just going to run through it really quickly. Watermelon with mint and lime. So in a small bowl, you just rub together some salt, let's, a lot, a, t- a tablespoon of kosher salt, and an equal amount of grated lime zest. Again, a tablespoon of lime zest. Rub those together and then rub in another tablespoon of minced fresh mint. Um, so you're combining a tablespoon each of salt, mint, and lime zest. It should be very, very well mixed pretty much uniform. Cut up some watermelon, and when you're ready to serve, sprinkle that with the salt mixture. If you haven't had the salt-chili-lime combination on watermelon, or on mango, or on papaya, or on peaches, or on almost any summer fruit, you are in for a huge treat here. This is wonderful. Okay, now's when we're gonna answer a few questions from listeners. Hi there. Uh, my name is Claire Cornetta, uh, and I have a question for Mark and team. Uh, my question is, how do we begin to decolonize our pantries, and what role can chefs play at, at every level uh, in this work? This is, of course, nothing new, but the health and wellness movement especially has a major problem with co-opting and appropriating traditional and cultural foods. The money made from these trends often doesn't flow to those native cultures, nor do we see or hear enough about the culture, cultural history and context of many foods. So here we have Kayla Stewart with my team. I would first suggest to, you know, really consider the ways in which you think about food, um, the ways in which you associate certain cuisines with health or don't associate certain cuisines with health and wellness for that matter. Um, understanding where certain ingredients come from, um, who brought those ingredients and how those ingredients arrived to the American and to the Western palate, um, recognizing the often painful and problematic history that's associated um, with the travel of said produce, um, fruits and vegetables. Starting there is really kind of a way to just change your own thinking and your own narrative about what good food is and how good food arrives um, to our plates. I then move on to, you know, really considering how you're getting your pantry items and who you're getting them from. 
So there are so many, I'll start with, with uh, spices and, um, you know, different businesses that, that create items that add flavor to our food. Um, so, you know, there's so many different POC and that of course means people of color own businesses. Um, I'm thinking of Fly by Jing, which makes one of my favorite chili sauces. Um, Sam, Igunsi Foods, um, Oshito. Spice Walla, these are just a few of many businesses that sell standard African um, soups, standard African um, bases, um, you know, spices from the Vietnamese diaspora, spices from the Asian community, um, chili sauces, all types of things that have now become, you know, very popular in the food world, but the people that are profiting from them are actually um, people in those particular communities and those particular groups. So that's one way to divert money back into these communities that have given us um, these spices and these foods that we so love. Thinking about where you're getting your produce from, supporting um, businesses in areas from people of color. There are plenty um of grocery stores in communities of color. Um, there are many emerging grocery stores um, supporting farmers, um, supporting farmers of color in particular. Um, really, again, thinking about and considering where you're getting your food and your produce and your ideas of food from and then amplifying those folks. So, you know, for chefs, chefs have a lot of power and they are often working in terms of creating their own identity and social media, um, share the people that you're um, learning from and using in your culinary decisions. Um, you know, promote someone, share their work on your Instagram, share their work on your Twitter. When you're creating a menu, don't just create a menu by listing ingredients. List where those ingredients are from. List where those ingredients um, arrive from so people understand, you know, that turmeric, for example, is not something that white people just pulled uh, pulled out of nowhere, you know, 10 years ago. It's, it's, it's something that's existed a long time, thanks to South Asian. So I would just say, you know, we think about, again, in, in the food industry, who gets credit and who is recognized, thinking about the cookbooks that we're promoting, thinking about where we're cooking from, making sure that when we want to cook a Mexican dish, finding the cookbook of a Mexican chef, you know, Finding Esteban Castillo's Chicano Eats when you want to uh, eat Chicano food and learn about Chicano food. NBB's Kitchen from Hawa Hassan uh, teaches us so much about the cuisines of countries on the eastern side of Africa. You know, there's so many books by so many incredible writers um, from around the world, um, I think is really key um, for both chefs and home cooks to decolonize our kitchens. Hi, this is Kimberly. Um from Joplin, Missouri. I recently left San Francisco to come back to uh, my small town in Missouri. And I know that uh, because of COVID, a lot of people did the same. They left big cities and have dispersed um, throughout the Midwest in smaller towns. And I'm wondering from a food perspective, um, what kind of impact you think that this is going to have? There's a lot of um, young chefs that have left big cities and are maybe trying to open something up in their small hometowns, uh, people who are used to farmer's markets and organic grocery stores in the big cities that are now going back to small towns where those don't exist. So I'd love your take on maybe how the food scene in middle America is going to change because of this, if you think it's going to change at all. So here we have Melissa McCart. 
Hi, Kimberly. It's Melissa here. I was a restaurant critic in Pittsburgh for seven years, and I'd love to answer this question. I think pre-pandemic, there were a lot of people moving out of cities into middle America because people were open to it and the rents were cheaper. But now it's different because there's a staff crisis that hits everywhere. There are like 8 million jobs that are open. I think it's very tough, not just to staff a restaurant, but to staff the suppliers, to staff the farmers. And I think we're going to see that all across the food industry. Number two is I think the cost of food is higher. And so that's going to shape what kinds of places end up opening or staying open. And number three is I think rents are going down everywhere or went down everywhere. So whether that means that some small operators go back into cities is to be determined. On the flip side, I would guess that there are going to be more cottage industry type businesses and more pop-ups because they don't require long-term staff. I would imagine there'd be more tiny restaurants that are surviving that don't require staff or very big restaurants that are opening that can afford to pay incentives and health insurance. And number three is I would hope that there'd be more support for local food because you're not having to support the freight and the staffing to get food from point A to point B. That's it for this week's listener questions. If you have a question about food, cooking, or whatever, it does not have to be a cooking question, any question about food, call our listener question line at 833-FOOD-POD, or to put it another way, 833-66-3763. That'll get you to our listener hotline. Leave your question And uh, we may get back to you. We may just answer it on the air. Thank you for that. One of the things I've been thinking about, and I've been thinking about this with my colleagues at the Bittman Project on this podcast and elsewhere, is how much unacknowledged influence the food of black people, the food of the descendants of formerly enslaved people has had on American eating, has had on our favorite dishes. And so that makes a conversation with Carla, to me, especially interesting, interesting enough so that in the upcoming weeks, we are going to talk to more African-American leaders of food on this podcast. We're going to have Adrian Miller, author of Black Smoke. We're going to have Stephen Satterfield, who's the star of the new Netflix series called High on the Hog. And we may have some others. So we're looking forward to that because we think this is an important part of our mutual heritage and an important thing to be discussing right now. All of that's coming in the next few weeks of Food with Mark Bittman. Thanks again for listening. And of course, I want to thank Carla Hall for coming on to the show. You can order her book, Soul Food, wherever you buy books. You can follow her at Carla P. Hall on Instagram, Carla Hall on Twitter, and Chef Carla Hall on Facebook. Folks, if you liked today's episode, and if you're still listening, I can assume that you did, then please subscribe to Food with Mark Bittman on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to listen. It would be real helpful if you left us a five-star review on Apple and detailed reviews are the best way for new listeners to discover the show. You can find the recipe from today's show in the episode show notes or at bitmanproject.com or at markbitman.com. 
they all kind of go to the same place. Finally, Food with Mark Bittman is a part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Check out Airwave's other shows at airwavemedia.com or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Mark Bittman, and thanks again for listening to Food. See you next week.